Okay, we want to move into another section now, and as I said, this is the most important section. Uh, we, uh, we, <clears throat> we, this is the Wednesday session with our counselees, and that what they start with is watching Nancy DeMoss' video, Brokenness. What does it take in my life to live a life broken before the Lord? They have some of those videos here. Nancy's up at First Baptist today ministering. Um, Nancy DeMoss' father was Arthur DeMoss. Nancy's a very godly ATI. She was ATI single. She travels with Life Action. The, the head of Life Action is an ATI dad, and some of the evangelists are ATI. If you have a son or a daughter that's musical, that would like to travel and sing and do evangelism in churches, you know, they go with, they take a whole team into a church, and they do, they take over the whole church. They do the babysitting. They have a couples conference during the week. They have a teenage conference, and they have singers. And they do America, You're Too Young to Die, if you ever seen that. It's excellent music, but it's going music, but it's the right kind of music because ATI is there. Uh, and many ATI kids that wanted to get a taste of evangelism or whatever needed a safe organization. It's one to consider. It really is worth considering for your kids. If they're musical and would love to sing and, and, and put on presentations in churches or you know big rallies that they do, uh, they have one on the home and one of the big musicals. But if they're, um, you know, if your kids are have that, where do they get that experience? Where do they get? Do you know? Um, I'm I'm surprised you're not here. But you know the people uh, from Texas. Um, what is her name? Jim is the Jimmy. The boy was the one that was going to put in a mental hospital, but they brought him to me instead, and Jimmy was set free. Who who was in Russia and has married the girl and is back in Russia, being an uh, assistant pastor to a Russian. Beard, the Beards, yes. Well, their son traveled with Life Action. So a year ago, when they asked me to go down and speak to all of the staff of Life Action, Joel was there. And I never knew Joel. Jim is the one that, Jim and God put Jim and I together very close. And we were really became, uh, I came like, a, I guess, Jim's grandpa more than his dad. But we were very, very close. And when I went to Russia, Jim was the one that uh, we went all around together and all. But Joel traveled with Life Action. And he was up there. And I said, I know that you people are going to have a hard time believing when I pass a picture of this young man, that this young man could be in a mental hospital today, still, if they had chosen to go that route. And now he's in Russia as an assistant pastor to a Russian. He's a godly young man. And you look at his countenance, you cannot believe, it's hard to believe where he was and how much the enemy got in his life and how God set him totally free. Just a delightful, godly young man. A uh, real asset to any program and to anybody. If you know James Beard, he's just a super young man. has a real heart for God. Um, I want you to go now to Ezekiel. I sometimes skip Ezekiel if I don't have kids. But if I have kids, I go to Ezekiel. If I'm counseling teenagers. Ezekiel 28. Is there any young men that have been here that haven't read yet? Okay, so you're going to get a chance to read Ezekiel 28. And I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm going to make you notice some stuff, okay? Uh, stand up, and I want you to read Ezekiel 28. I want you to read uh, verse 1 and 2. Okay, so the, here we have uh, the word of the Lord coming to a prophet. The prophet goes in, and he begins to make a pronouncement here. 
And he made the pronouncement to who? Okay, I'm asking the young man. And you old men, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> okay. The Prince of Tyre. Okay. And see, Tyre was a real place. And this prince, does God identify what kind of a, what kind of a person he's talking to? Look at the last thing. He says, yet thou art what? A man. So it's very clear. Tyre was, remember, God brought a judgment to Tyre and Sidon. Moody has a movie on that. You know how the, the judgment and how it exactly took place, exactly just as God said what happened. Okay. Now, I want you to skip, and the, the prophet is going to, the word of the Lord is coming to the prophet again in verse 11. So I want you to read 11 and, and 12. Okay. Now, it almost sounds like the same thing, doesn't it? Almost. But there's something that was changed. Who is he addressing here? In, in line, oh, sorry, line two, you don't have it. In, uh, in the first part of 12, who's he addressing? The king of what? King of Tyre. What did he call him in verse two? And that right there, if, if you know Hebrew, all of a sudden you're going, wait a minute. That is not normal in scripture when they're talking about the same person to change the title. If they call him Prince one place, you don't read him Prince David, King David. It's King David, King David. So the right there, that's a yellow light for us. That has he switched people? Now, let's see, did he? Now, what is the very first phrase of 13? Well, that limits it, doesn't it? Now, was the physical man... That, that the prophet was speaking to, had he been in Eden from as far as the biblical records seem to indicate? Had the physical king or leader of Tyre, the guy who was sitting there on the throne, had he been in Eden? He couldn't have been. Why? Because God makes it pretty clear. Who was in Eden? And who else? Okay, the cherubim, the same Florida, Adam and Eve, who walked with him in the garden and talked to him? And who else showed up in the garden? Okay. So we got all those. So it's got to be one of those, right? I mean, we, we, we got the, we at least limited it down. Now, who could it possibly be? Read verse 14. What is a cherubim or a cherub? It's an angel. So obviously the person he's talking to now is not talking about a person. He's talking to an angel who was in the Garden of Eden. And I think we got it pretty much figured out who it was. Now let's go back. And, and remember, I only do this with teenagers, basically. Uh, let us go back now to verse 13. And you see how I do with it? Now why do I ask him questions like that? Why would I in counseling? Because in counseling, these kids are sitting with me for three hours straight. What can happen in three hours straight if I do all the talking and all the reading? Well, they're tripping off someplace. But if they're reading scripture and interacting with me, what does the scripture say? Now, what does that say? What does that mean? They're with me. And the kids will say, I can't believe we've been three hours. You know, because they're right there and they're interacting and they're, it's very important that, that, that the counselee be a part of the process. It's not something that's going to happen to this kid. It's something that's going to happen in the kid. And he's got to be a part of it for it to happen. Okay. Now, I want you to read uh, verse 13. Let's read the whole thing. Thank you. You may be seated. 
Now remember, and you did well, because those are pretty hard words, some of those. Um, because I can't spell, I also couldn't read. And uh, it's amazing, when I went to Bible school, immediately they said, uh, you had to take a test to get in the school. And I was out of the army at that time. And they said, you went to the L.A. school system in the 40s, didn't you? I said, how did you know that? I said, you can't read or spell. And it said that they had uh, what, they, uh, what they had taught at that time. You know, the new things, always a new school thing, is if you could read something, you could spell it. That's a lot. Yes. See, I was never taught phonics or anything. All as if I could read a word, the, obviously I could spell it. And that was the philosophy, and it didn't fly, it didn't work. And many of us that went through that L.A. school system at that time couldn't read or spell. So I used to sit in panic in a church or a science school class, that they were going to, you know, read around and I was going to have to read. So I was trying to read ahead, you know, and I'm going to get Hezekiah's mother and I don't know how to say it, you know, <laughs> and I was going to be embarrassed and all of this stuff. In fact, I'll tell you how strong it was. When I was asked to go to Bible college, to teach at a Bible college, my first one, well, the first major full-time teaching in a Bible college, I was teaching another one. They had overheads. And I was going to have to write on the overhead and the kids would find out I was what? Illiterate. <laughs> I couldn't spell. And I almost turned it down and going to the Bible college because the kids would see I couldn't spell. And I didn't want that rejection because I had so much rejection growing up. I didn't need rejection of the classroom. But that didn't happen. I went. I knew that God wanted me to go. I went with real fear and nervousness and all of that. And it was one of the best ministries I had in, in my life, teaching in that Bible college. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I've been there, guys, and I know the feelings. Satan was an angel of light. Light came from him, not on him. And I believe at this time, and maybe I'm wrong, but I believe that he had a, a robe of woven gold, and these stones were put in that robe. And when he walked in the garden, he was very beautiful and very attractive. I don't know what he looked like, but God said he was the most beautiful of all his creation. He wasn't something from the swamp. Eve would have been afraid of him. She was not afraid of him. This light came out of him. Uh, the King James... <clears throat> and I'm glad that most of you have King James. Um, there's two words here that the other translations really do some real strange stuff with. And it says here that there were some other things that were in him. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee the day you were created. Tablets and pipes, the scripture makes it very clear, were inside of him. Now, your NIV will say settings and sockets, as if he had prongs coming out of him with these, with these stones in it. But you'll get, you know, I get every translation you can imagine in my, you know, in my counseling, and uh, I ask him, what's your footnote say? Uh, often the footnote will say the exact meaning of these words in the Hebrew are not known. I'm going, yeah, that's by these translators, but I think the exact word in the Hebrew is known. If you take any of your old... Um, commentaries on Ezekiel, written before the modern-day stuff, you will find every one of them will say what I'm telling you. It's just today that they've changed the meaning of this. These two words are Hebrew words for musical instruments. And this is significance because it's flutes and tambourines. Now, I mean, if you're translating this, who do you know has flutes and tambourines inside of them? But what is significant about this, very significant, that in the first reference to Satan,
that we have in Scripture, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel, is music is associated with him. That's what makes us so significant. That music flowed out of him. So not only did light come out of him in all these colors, but music flowed from him. Dr. McGee was my pastor, and uh, before I went to Bible school, or where I was just in Bible school going to McGee's church, he preached on this. And McGee is the first person I ever heard share about music coming from Satan. And he said, when Satan was, and he's standing at church the open door, which was a mega church in those days, you know, 4,000 people. He stood there and he said, when Satan fell from heaven, he fell in the choir loft. And he pointed back to the choir. And I thought, we got trouble in the choir, McGee? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, choirs have been a lot of trouble. You know what I'm saying? They have to have robes, don't have robes, and churches split over choirs and all this kind of stuff. But we've got to see that I, you know, there's a lot of places I haven't been, but brothers, I've been a lot of places all over the world. And I do not know of any people's group that's calling Satan that doesn't use a form of music. Not one. I asked that question. Do your people use music to call spirits? And the question is always, the answer is always what? Yes. Well, a major leader, I can't tell you who he is, but a major leader that you would know who he is, said, I don't like what Logan teaches on, on music. Well, I'm squeaky compared to Gothard. I'm not squeaky in what I believe, but I'm squeaky in what I teach. And uh, <clears throat> so I, he, this guy called and said, my son wants to straighten you out. He's 16. And I said, well, I guess I could be straightened out by a 16-year-old. Go ahead, bring him. And he said, he's going to get you on the music. And I said, great. So um, he showed up. He's really a neat kid. In fact, he could be in here. He's not, but he could be. He's down in Dallas now. And um, this kid um, says he sits there and he's one of these real, he's probably a, a, a prophet, you know, not under control. Logan, I don't agree with you on your music. And I don't agree with what you're teaching. I said, you ever heard me? No, but I've heard. <laughs> and I'm going, great. I said, um, um, you know, before I, we, we, we discuss music, why don't you let me bring a video I have of Mayan Indians calling demons? Would that be okay? And well, after we see the Mayan Indians in Guatemala calling demons on this mountain with their music, then we'll talk about it. He said, okay. So I brought the video. I mean, I could have brought it here. The Wycliffe Bible Translators puts this video together of just no talking, but just all different kinds of things in Guatemala. Guatemala is a very beautiful place of the Mayan Indians calling spirits, and they're using a guitar and a flute. That's not what he expected. He thought it was going to be you know, a drum group up there. No, it was not rock. He's going, I didn't expect this. <laughs> I said, well, I didn't think so. <laughs> you know, what do the Indians use? Chanting. What does the medicine man use to call spirits? Chanting. Chanting is a form of what? Music, and they do it in certain tonals and so on. And see, what we have to realize in every culture, there is music that is used that is definitely associated with the enemy, but it's not always rock music or contemporary Christian music. You know what I'm saying? But the music is associated, and whenever the people hear that music, what do they know? Yeah, they know that they're calling spirits. And so I asked, I remember in Africa, when, remember I told you in Nigeria, uh, in Ghana, uh, working at that seminary with all these leaders Christian leaders from 10 Western African countries. And I said, do your people use music to call spirits? And every one of these 10 countries, they said, yes. And one guy said, oh, yeah, they get up, and he gets up, and he's starting in the aisle, and he's doing the thing. 
And they all go, stop! You know, I mean, they didn't want any demons there at that seminary and in our meeting. And he said, stop doing that. And I said, well, why don't you put Christian words to it since everybody knows it? Right? Does that make sense? I mean, it's real popular, so put Christian words to it, and you get a, a you know, a, a church that is, uh, was it, user-friendly. And, um, <clears throat> and they said, no. I mean, they, could, they were horrified to think you would take that music that was so associated with the enemy and put words to it. As far as they're concerned, it wouldn't make it Christian. So this music issue is, is, is a big, big issue. But we do know that there is music that is conducive to demonic activity. And you've got to come to that conclusion. We may differ at whether it's done on a guitar or a banjo. Somebody's got a banjo here, and they're going to bring it in or cast demons out of it. But, um, so he left it in his trunk. You know, don't bring it in the building. You know, you may bring something in with it. But, um, but there, there is music that is proper, and there's music that's not. We've got to come to that agreement. And there's music that seems that uh, invites enemy activity, but there's also music that what? Repels it. And when Saul was oppressed by demons and everybody knew he was, they didn't call the exorcist. They called the harpist. And David played the harp and he sang. But you also have to realize what else about David. Did you read what it said about David? It talked about his heart. It's not just the music. It's the heart of the musician playing the music. Years ago, oh, I could have killed Bill Gothard. I could have wrung his neck. Uh, we were involved every other week as fathers meeting. A number of us were picked. Why we were picked, I don't know. That's why Bill and I go back, way back, because I don't know why I was picked. But I was picked to represent pastors. We had guys from Boeing Aircraft. We had doctors. We had people from every walk of life that met every other week in Seattle because Bill was starting out with this stuff and we were applying this stuff in our families to see if it would work. So before, you know, we were the testers. So before he got up and taught it in a seminar, we were the guinea pigs. Well, I ended up, of all things, on the community on music, which Bill had not done anything on music, but he realized he needed to. Now, we're going way back in the 60s. And so I am a non-musician, but I'm on this committee and we're having some really neat people. We have, you know, Muzak, if you we had a guy from Muzak, and to work with Muzak, you have to have a master's degree in music and a doctor's degree in psychology. You know, the ones that, that piped in the music and you bought the music for all this stuff. That's what these guys were. And we had some of those guys there. We had all different kinds of people in this group on the music issue. And we we're battling around the music issue and all this kind of stuff long before this rock and the Christian stuff that was going on. And um, lo and behold, Bill Gothard had the nerve without telling us because in the old days, we counseled there. So when, at the end of every break, I would go forward. I stood on one side of Bill. My buddy stood on the other side of Bill. When people came down, we actually counseled them in the principles and how to apply them to the life and so on. That was done in the early basics. And so Bill drops a bomb on us. And moral freedom, he drops, you know, that chart on music. You've seen his chart on music, you know. He dropped that in there and didn't tell us. And I knew we were in trouble. We got 32,000 people there and a lot of hippies. You know, the girls are walking and they tinkle. Remember those days when they wore the, the girls look, the girls looking like they're wearing rugs? You know, and they had the tinkling bells or you, maybe you didn't have them because you're in the middle of, but you know, all the hippies were all there. So we had all these hippie kids, these Jesus kids, you know, all these weird kids and that were there and, you know, tinkling and all of that. Bill was real popular. And so at that time, 
So anyway, I go forward, and I'm shaking my head, and he says, what's wrong? I said, Bill, you dropped a bomb on us. I said, I'm not ready for these people, and they're going to go for the throat. I mean, I'm smart enough to know they're going to go for the throat. So I'm down there, and people are storming down, and they are stormingly angry that he is saying there's enemy activity with music. You know how he does this thing. They're just really upset. So I'm there, and lo and behold, I get the Jericho Five, or whatever they were, this new rock band. And these guys are there with their long hair, you know, and their earrings and the, all the stuff in their hair hanging down and their strange clothes, and they're standing before me. We don't agree with him. And I'm going, why don't you talk to him? <laughs> and everybody's gathering around because these guys are going to roast Logan, you know, and I'm standing there, they're going to roast me. I don't know about music. What he's saying isn't musical, it isn't rhyme, blah, 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 blah. And I said, oh, God, what do I do? You know, if you don't know what to do, ask God. <laughs> Cry out for wisdom. I don't know what to say. Because they could tie me up in music. I mean, I can't play anything. And I can't even sing in a choir because I can't stay on, I, you know, put me next to anybody and I'll be singing what they're singing. You know what I mean? I just can't stay on it. And so I'm going, boy, this is awful. And so these guys are there and, I, and these five, this five Christian rock group. And I said, uh, guys, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I understand what he's saying. I've worked on this. We've had all these people, and you have no idea all the work that's gone in and all the people we've dealt with on this music issue. But I said, uh, can I ask you a personal question? And when you're going to get in someone's life, you better ask for a personal question if you're really going to embarrass them in front of all these people standing around. I said, you know, I don't know a lot about music, but remember what section did he dump the music in? It was the moral freedom area, wasn't it, guys? Yeah. I said, well, let me ask you a question. You're saying what he's teaching is wrong. And what you're doing is right. I said, do you have moral freedom? Do you have moral freedom? Do you have moral freedom? And when I pointed my finger to all five guys, their heads dropped. I said, guys, you answered the question. And they turned around and walked away. And we can't have freedom if we're not willing to give our music to God. We just will not come to freedom. And if I'm a young person, then it's not my music standards that are important, it's my parents' music standards. Because if I slip around and listen to music that they don't approve of, then I'm in rebellion or stubbornness or one of those things we've already looked at. So music is very important. But as we were doing this thing, I'm going to share this with you real quickly. We, uh, they, had, uh, they did all different kinds of things that Bill worked on. And one of the things they did is they had uh, to find out the calming effects of music. They had two musicians of equal talent, but they could not improvise, play music in a mental hospital to see the effects of music on mental patients. And so they had to play word, you know, just note for note exactly. I mean, you put a little in, but they couldn't put any grace notes in. They had to stick pretty much as it was. The two musicians played of equal talent. One of them had some calming effect. The other had unbelievably noticeable calming effect upon the disturbed mental patients. The one who had sort of a calming effect was an unbeliever. The one who had real calming effect was a believer because of their heart. Uh, when I taught in the college, I, we taught a lot of things. We had to teach music because we had a very strict standard of music at the college. So I had a music therapist from a mental hospital that was 24 years old come in and teach. 
because maybe this old man didn't know what he's talking about, but a 24-year-old did. And she would come in and play how she was working with disturbed teenagers in Kansas City and how music affected them and how they used music in the, in the mental hospital with teenagers. And she did a super job. You know, what I couldn't do, she really did. Um, and so music does have an effect, and we need to give our music to God. Let me tell you this, young man. Any area of your life that you are not willing to yield to God's control, Satan will take control of it. And you withhold your music, you're walking around for the enemy to get into your life through your music. Let's go to Isaiah 14 because that's the only other passage in the Old Testament that gives us any glimpse of why Satan was booted out of heaven. <clears throat> Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. And a good question. How art you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How have you been cut down to the ground that did weaken the nations? Isn't that a good question? How did this happen? What took place? Why did God boot you out of heaven? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. So there are five I wills there. <clears throat> now, don't blurt it out, but think. Some of you already know, you've read, and you've picked up on this, but some of you haven't. And I asked my counselees, and they read it, who did Satan say this to? What do you think most of them say? God. That's not who he said it to. Who did he say it to? Yes, thou hast said in thine heart. Whenever I buy a Bible, maybe this will help you, or read the Bible, I try to read the Bible through at least once a year, and then I can read wherever I want to for fun, because I am not one that cares much for Jeremiah or Ezekiel or some of the minor prophets. You know, it's not my exciting place to go and read. But it, So if I just chose what I wanted to, I would skip those, and I know that I need to read them through, so I need to make a... a, a a commitment to read the Bible clearer through and then read where I want to. And um, when I um, read the Bible through, I always look for something. Because I found for me, if I'm not looking for something, I get absolutely nothing. But when I'm looking for something, it makes me read more carefully. You know, what is God actually saying? Rather than I read my chapters, I did my duty to God and country, and I can't even tell you what I read. And so when I, this particular Bible... Not this one, but the one in the office mirror. I bought both of these together because my Bibles fall apart because I use them so much. The oil on my fingers turns them yellow and they get all crispy. And, and when you use a Bible all the time in counseling, they don't last long. And so when I got the one in the office, was same time I got this one. When I read that one through and marked it, because I like reading using just an unmarked Bible and no notes. I don't want, because if someone says, this is what it means, I'm stuck. You know, when you read something in a Bible that says, this is what it means, then my mind is stuck there rather than let it, God, what does this mean? You show me what it means. If you showed the guy that wrote this thing, you could show me too. And so uh, I marked every reference from Genesis to Revelation on thinking. You'd be amazed at what God says about thinking. And this is one of those on thinking. You know, what a person is thinking. And he says here, thou hast said in thine heart, 
And it's, that, that particular reference is used a lot in Scripture. Because um, it says a fool says certain things in his heart. It says a wicked man says certain things in his heart. A righteous man says certain things in his heart. The Scripture, Jesus said, as a man, what? Thinketh where? In his heart, so is he. The things that are going on in his heart, so is he. Out of the fullness of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. If I stepped on this kid's foot over here, I like to pick on him because he picks on me. And he lets out a string of words and he says, pardon my French. I'm going, that isn't French. You know, oops, I don't know where that came from. I know where it came from. It came out of his heart. You know what I'm saying? He says, get off my foot. And he says some choice words. Those choice words don't fall out if they're not in there. You know what I'm saying? The stuff doesn't come out of your mouth if it isn't in your heart. And we need to take our thoughts captive and so on because that's we saw the spiritual battle on, on the first night I was here, whenever that was. Okay, now there, these five I wills are very significant, but it's the last I will we want to look at. I will be like the Most High. Now, Satan took a name for God, and that name for God is the aspect of God's character he wanted to be like. He didn't want to be like El Elyon. I'm sorry, me, he did. He didn't want to be like Jehovah Rapha. He didn't want to heal anybody. He didn't want to be Jehovah Jireh. Did he want to provide some kind of a sacrifice? No, did he want to be Jehovah Nisi, the one that gives victory? You're in a spiritual battle, you better cry out to Jehovah Nisi. He's the one that's promised victory. You ever wondered why when Moses held the stick up, they won, and when they couldn't see the stick, they lost? If you don't know the names of God, you'll never figure that one out. Man, a stick? Come on. Remember, the banner was not a banner. A banner was not, you know, a flag. A banner was a stick. You, if you haven't studied the names of God, you guys failed Knoxville <laughs> last year. And it's so thrilling. We're getting letters from families that said, Logan, I can't thank you enough. Our family began to know who God is, and it's changing our family. You know, you challenged us to do that, and we are doing that. And all of a sudden, we're going deeper as we're getting to know the, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're knowing who he is. And we can cry out to him as a family specifically. And the kids will say, oh, we need to call on this name of God. Because this is what that issue is. Um, so we said El Elyon. El Elyon, the most high is El Elyon. El Elyon is the sovereign one that reigns. It's literally what it means. Now, what, what does he mean? What is he saying? Satan did not X God out. Did you get that? He said, I want to be what? Do you think he could push God out of his life? Push God out of heaven? No, he knew better. But he said, I want to be like this aspect of God. I want to be like El Elyon. And what he's saying, I, refuse, I choose the right to be the final authority in my life. I know God says this, but I am going to do this. Satan became creature-centered, and God threw him out of heaven. When are you most like Satan? When you're looking at inappropriate material? No. When you're drinking things that God doesn't want you to drink or whatever? No. When I decide that
that I in the one is going to decide what's right and wrong for me. That's when I'm most like Satan. And that will lead to all kinds of stuff. Now, I sent this to Bill. He loved this. The biggest block to our surrender is not our appetites and wayward desires, but our addiction to running our own lives. Isn't that an awesome statement? I have these in my notebook so I can look at them because guess what Logan likes to do? Run my own life. It's natural. The greatest struggle is not all this stuff. The greatest struggle is my desire to be the final authority in my own life. That's my biggest struggle. That's what that is saying. The biggest block to our surrender is not our appetites, wayward desires, but our addiction to running our own lives. And that's exactly what Satan said. I will run my own life. And I don't care what God says. You know, it seems so dumb. When I was at the college, one of the most wonderful things that happened to me, and we were having horrible financial problems, some of the boys came in. When I say boys, you know, college fellows came in. and said, hey, I was a chaplain as well as the head of the counseling department. He said, hey, chaplain, come outside. I want to show you something. So I went outside with these guys, and there was a Renault Dauphine, a French car, with leather seats, you know, and all this stuff. And I looked at it, I said, but that is a neat car. And it had front wheel drive, which was unique at that time. Only European cars had it. And uh, I said, whose car is it? Which one of you guys belongs to? And they said, we pulled our money together and bought it for you. I started crying. These guys haven't got two nickels to rub together, and they bought me a car. Because you know, my wife was stuck out in the country with no transportation, because we only had one car. So I drew this, drove this Renault home, never had uh, you know, a Renault like that. I had one of the kids drive it home, and I drove my car, and, and, and I had an old clunker, and, and uh, you know, I had a Bill Gothard special. Do you know what I mean? One of those that, uh, you know, if you hold it another two weeks, it'll be worth something. <laughs> I got it so old. But I had one of those kind of things, you know, great huge gas, gas hog things that someone gave us. And uh, drove this thing home, and so my wife, she didn't want to drive this thing because you had to stick shift it. And uh, I was going to the car, and I was looking for the spare tire. I looked everywhere. Raised up the thing in the back, you know, looked in there. It should be in there. It's not there. Got on my hands and knees, looked under the car. Did they slide the thing under there? I looked everywhere for this thing, except in the manual, of course. So I drive back to the college, and I said, guys, I don't get it. I said, I don't, you know, European cars have to have spare tires because this was definitely built in France and sent over here. And I said, I can't find the spare tire. They said, oh, Logan. And they opened the hood, and there it was on top of the engine. Now, how many people would you, how many people would look for the spare tire to be bolted down on top of your engine? But that's where it was. And you know what many people have done? They bought a car, driving out of the parking lot, they took the manual and threw it out the window and said, I don't need this. You know what many Christians have done? They've taken the manual and thrown it out the window, and they're suffering all the reproofs. We need to go back in the manual about how to live it. We need to realize that when I decide that I'll be the final authority in my life, I am taking my stand with Satan. What do we call that? We call that creature-centered. Fred Dickinson, who taught at Moody for 25 years, was the head theologian there, said, Satan has sold his rebellious philosophy to mankind. And Satan will rule over everyone 
that buys the philosophy of being creature-centered. The most important person in my life is who? Me. And I'll do what I want to do. Guys, and I'm talking about the younger guys, because the older guys, if it fits, you know, if the shoe fits, put it on. But let me tell you, when you guys start shaving, get a little hair under your arms and a couple on your chest, all of a sudden, you start becoming creature-centered. Have you noticed that? If that's that independent thing, you've got to be careful. God wants you to mature. God wants you to be able to make decisions and so on. But the enemy will come in, and when you become creature-centered, and you're going to do what you want to do, and I don't care what my folks think, and I don't care, you know, whatever, I'm in trouble. I am taking my stand with Satan, and God didn't put up with it with Satan, and he's not going to put up with it with you. If you think you can get away with it when Satan can get away with it, you know, it's not going to work. Now, what is this creature-centeredness? Basically, in plain English, what do we call it? When I build life around myself, what is a plain word that we understand? More than self-centeredness. Pride. Pride is building life around I, around me. Now, we're going to run through some verses in Proverbs because we've got to get through at 12.30, but we're not going to be through with this. We're going to set, set it up to after lunch to show you why you can never, ever live a victorious Christian life if there's pride in your life. Never. Now, let's go to Proverbs, and we're going to look through all the verses on pride in Proverbs. Oh. While you're going to Proverbs 6, let me give you just, this is a freebie. Um, you know, since we didn't get any candy on our pillows last night. The more expensive of a place you stay, the bigger. Sometimes you get box of chocolates in some places. We stayed in Atlanta at one of the five-star hotels in America. There's very few of them. We got to stay there less than days in. They had uh, um, paintings in there with, you know, that were wired. And I asked the guy who was a Christian who ran the place. Uh, we had it for CEFs because the guy get, let us stay there for you know, less than you could stay at any cheap motel. They have Persian carpets in the elevators. And in our rooms, on all the pillows when you came in, were orchids. <laughs> and at night when you came in, you know, they turned it down. There was candy and the music was playing and all this stuff while you were out. I would never been treated like that. You know, I could go for that. <laughs> you know, but how do you live uptown with downtown wages? You know, <laughs> it's pretty hard. But uh, let me just share this thing here. It's, um, it's, since you didn't get that, this is a freebie. Uh, I was discipling a guy, and this guy worked for savings and loan. And in five years, this guy loaned out millions and millions of dollars. I have it written down. I can't remember how much every week. And in all those years that he loaned all this money out to multiply millions of dollars, he only made one bad loan that was, you know, didn't pay. And he loaned it to a friend, and he knew the friend wouldn't pay. And he was going around the country, and he was sharing. They said, how can you do this? You know, it's impossible for someone for five years straight to never have a loan that was foreclosed on or that people didn't pay. How did you do it? And he said, oh, I just uh, looked in the Word of God and got directions for a wicked man. And this is what he used in Proverbs. 
Proverbs 12, a naughty person, a wicked man, there are three signs of a wicked man. And if you're going to be involved in any kind of financial dealings with a wicked person, look for these three signs. See, <clears throat> the first thing is in verse 13. It talks about he walketh with a forward mouth and so on. The first thing is he winketh with his eyes. See, just before someone will lie to you, they blink their eyes. So you ask your kids something and they start blinking their eyes. You got a pretty good idea of what? Even if they're trying real hard. <laughs> no, what's it be? You know. Uh, but it's amazing. People blink their eyes. So the guy is sitting down and this guy says, you know, I need $3 million on the warehouse and we have all this furniture, Ethan Allen, all this stuff there. And he starts going. He's going, well, number one. The second one is, <clears throat> the second thing is he speaketh with his feet. All of a sudden his feet start shuffling. So this guy's going, his feet are going. He's going, hmm. The third thing is he teaches with his fingers. Well, don't you see? Look, you know. He said, that's it. <laughs> one, two, three, you're out. And so what he would do is they would do an in-depth study on all the stuff from the paperwork. And they always found these guys that lied. There wasn't anything in the warehouse. There wasn't in a warehouse or whatever. But they can't afford on certain loans to put that kind of money on every single person that's going to get a loan. And so they do some real hard homework. And that's why. And he just all he did is look for the three signs of a wicked man. And when he saw it, didn't make the loan, did in-depth teaching, and found out that the guy was lying. And so, I mean, I just, I love Scripture, guys. It's right there. It's so much there for us. If we'll just look, God wants to warn us and teach us stuff. But Proverbs says, These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him. Now, the NIV and some of these other, I'm sorry I said those words, but you know those other words, uh, they don't use abomination. They say detestable. Well, my wife is interested, you know, um, and she's not interested in the sins of the guys that I talk with. She doesn't even want to know. It makes her sick. Not that your sins make her sick, but the sins of people just make her sick. She doesn't want to know what's going on at work. She prays, but she doesn't want to know. She says, don't tell me. It just makes me sick. All this evil. But I'm in Proverbs 6, 16. I said last night we had chicken divine, or whatever you call it. And she said, really? I said, yeah. She said, what would you do with the broccoli? I said, well, there wasn't any broccoli in there. She said, well, it really wasn't chicken divine. Because, see, to me, broccoli is detestable, but it's not quite an abomination, but it's close. And I think the King James word, abomination, just says it stronger than these newer translations say detestable. Because um, here God has given us a list of what he says, this is an abomination, and it's no stronger. There is no stronger word in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, for something that you hate, 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 it's, it's the bottom line word, abomination. And what is the very first thing on God's abomination list that's abomination to him? Pride in the kisser. 17, right? Because if there's pride in the kisser, where is it first? In the heart. It's not going to be on the kisser if it's not in the heart. So a proud look means a pride in the heart. Proverbs 8.13 the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. If you look that up and do your Hebrew studies on this, you're going to find that God says, I hate pride and arrogancy 
as much as an evil lifestyle. Because pride and arrogancy, as we're going to see after lunch, will lead you guys into an evil lifestyle. And if you don't deal with it, you will never be free of your evil lifestyle. I don't care who casts demons out of you. And you get the biggest demon casters there are. Ain't going to work. Now, what is the difference between pride and arrogancy? Well, in my Hebrew helps, although Mike Massey, you know the guy that gave me the million dollars, was just a joke. Well, he's buying me a Hebrew and a Greek thing to go on my computer. I told you that just you know bombed out last November, and I had to wait to get money to buy one. You know, it, it did it before Y2K, but whatever Y2K anyway. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just asked God, I really need a computer. It can help me with my Bible studies. He's giving me the most difficult Greek and Hebrew Bible studies are the most that you can buy. Mike said he ordered them. I wanted to remind him. I didn't get them, Mike. <laughs> you sent me this lousy check that I can't cash. Now you're promised me a, a Bible program that I didn't get. You know, he's out of here. He's not in there, so I can just run him down all I want. Um, but he's a buddy of mine. But what is the difference between pride and arrogancy? And in my Hebrew helps, I looked at him, and guess what? I could see very little difference, and I'm supposed to have some of the best Hebrew helps in book forms that I have by my chair that you can get. I could not see a difference. You know, as you looked at a few different words, but I just didn't get it. So let me give you a Western view on it, right? I think a man can be prideful, and it can be private. But when a man is arrogant, now, I know that's a Western thing. It's really not in the Hebrew, but I think we need to realize that because people say, that man is arrogant. Well, what do you mean? Well, there's, he gives off something. And that's the arrogancy. But God says, I hate both of them. Because it'll lead you to an evil lifestyle. Or it is, I hate it as bad as an evil lifestyle. Okay, Proverbs 11.2. When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. If I, when God puts his finger on a point of pride in my life, and if I'm not willing to deal with that pride, eventually what's going to happen? It's going to bring me to what? Now, I, I don't know any better illustrations to use, and I know by the grace of God it could be me. You know, I was so, some of you guys don't know Bill Gothard very well. If you know Bill Gothard very well, and around him, you'll find out he is a real flesh and blood person. And a lot of times you see him up there and, and you just wonder you know, about him. And we were talking the other morning, very early in the morning, and I said, you know, Bill, I am so concerned about the Internet. You know, you're going to hear me do my thing about Internet all the time. I'll do it in Knoxville. Any, any homeschool thing, I, I just hit this thing again and again and again and again. So many kids are going down the tubes. So many men are going down the tubes with all the evil they're clicking in on the Internet. Well, I said, Bill, you know, we've just gone on the Internet here at the office on one of our computers. And Bill, I don't want to know how to get on the Internet. And Bill said, either do I. Because both of us at the office early in the morning don't have to battle with that kind of temptation. Why? Because we don't know how to do it. You know, thank God. Now, he's not beyond. you guys pray for the guy? Wouldn't Satan like him to run off with some lady? Wouldn't he? or be caught in some kind of evil thing to de destroy the whole work, you need to pray for him. He's a target of the enemy. Billy Graham, anybody that's in high leadership, the enemy wants them to fall. The, be you know, the bigger they are, the better the fall. 
But we had two guys fall. And the reason I'm saying that is I'm not putting either one of these men down. But the result of the fall was totally different in both men's lives. One was Swaggart, one was Baker. When Baker fell, if you read the books that Billy Graham's son wrote, he wrote two of them, really interesting books, uh, their involvement with Baker in prison. And when they went the first time, they really, the first few times, they struggled with him until he was sent down south and they went and he was a different person. The first time he was justifying, blaming everybody, you know, and all of this and that. The second time, he was humble. And he came out a different man than went into prison. Swaggered, and the reason I know this is because some of his leadership came to us because they're having demonic problems after he fell. Those high leadership are having demonic problems after he fell. Came to our conference center or came to our center for me to, to counsel with him because of the demonic stuff going on. When he fell the first time, um, they brought in a demon caster. And if I told you his name, many of you, especially if you're charismatic, would obviously know him. Many others would know the man without that. And he cast lust demons out of Baker. I mean, out of uh, Swagger. You know, name of Jesus, uh, demon of lust, demon of prostitution, demon of whatever, you know, and cast all these demons out. And, um, and then what happened after the demons were cast out? He was caught in California, again, in a situation. Baker's problem and Swaggart's problem, the root of the problem, was not immorality. What was it? What does the word say? It was pride. The thing that brought the shame was immorality. But what opened them up to the shame was what? We've got to see that, guys. The root, the root sin, the worst sin that anyone in this room can commit is the sin of pride. It will bring you down. How you come down is not really important, is it? There's so many ways to bring a guy down. That's not really the issue. The issue is, if I will not deal with this issue of pride in my life, I am going, if God's word is accurate, which I believe it is, I am not going to get away with it. It's going to bring me down. <clears throat> pride will precede the shame. And how do we know that swaggered? I'm not trying to pick on the guy, but when his denomination said, we don't want you to preach for, what, a year and a half, two years or whatever, what do you tell him? You guys are not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. So we see that he, he got out from under his authority, and I don't think he's put himself under their authority yet. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. But what happened, he opened up people in the church. After that time, people in the church began to hear voices that never heard voices before. It was really amazing. Because why? Who is the protector of that local church? Who's the protector of that ministry? The guy on top, isn't he? Just like a dad is over a family. And when the guy was in bondage, what happened? And when he refused to deal with it after it was exposed and really didn't deal with the issue, the congregation that was left there began to experience all kinds of demonic stuff that they never had experienced before in that, in that position. So pride cometh before shame. And so if we don't deal with pride, shame will come. And remember that God is gracious. God is not like us dads. You know, your kid does something, so you slug him. God doesn't do, deal with us that way. God is very patient and long-suffering. What's the first thing God wants to do to bring us to himself? To be good to us. You know, I'm doing this stuff and God is blessing me. The goodness of God is to lead me to what? Repentance. So God is, you know, God is treating me really good and I think, hey, I'm getting away with this. God doesn't see this. We need to realize the verse, what? Thou God, what? Seest me. Okay. Proverbs 
Oh, brother. You ought to draw a line through this. I'm not sure it's true. It says only by pride. I think draw a line put sometimes. Okay. Uh, only by pride comes what? Contention. But with a well of eyes is wisdom. I found this works really good when there's contention between me and my wife. I point out her pride. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came? <laughs> Get all these pointers. <laughs> Where do I need to look? Is there a point of pride in me? Is there a point of pride in me? <clears throat> do I have to win this one? You may win the skirmish, but brothers, you lose the war. I need to look inside. Is there a point of pride here? There's contention. And it says only. So either God's word is true or, or cut that verse out and throw it away. Um, Proverbs 15.25. This is a strong one, guys. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud. That's not termites, tornadoes, or earthquakes. If you and I, as the leader of our family, refuse to open our hearts and life up and let the Holy Spirit point out points of pride in our life, it will destroy my family. The strongest verse in all the Bible is 16.5. Everyone. It's another one of those. Why everyone? Why can't it be just sort of, or almost everybody? Everyone that's proud in heart becomes what? An abomination to God. Though hand join in hand, if you look that up in the Hebrew, is still they join forces. They will not go unpunished. I don't care how many people you have stand with you. How many people believe the way you believe? God says, if there's pride there, you become an abomination and judgment will come. The verse that everybody knows is 16:18. Even seems like new Christians almost know this one by heart. Pride goes before what? Well, destruction and a haughty spirit before what? A fall. God doesn't explain it, but he just said, if pride is there, this is what's going to happen. Look at Proverbs 28, 25. He that is of a proud heart stirs up strife. But he that putteth this trust in the Lord shall be made fat. You know what we hear? Because I'm in pastor circles, you know, because I still maintain my, my, my pastoral thing, even though I'm not doing a pastor's role, I haven't for a long time, with the, I, many of you know, the same pastoral group that John MacArthur's in, I'm in the same one. Um, they'll tell you this. The worst thing that can happen to the church is to have an ATI family join it. You'll hear this in Bible churches. You'll hear it in Baptist churches. Why? Because there's such a critical spirit. They're against everything. 
And I wonder sometimes, guys, when we approach the pastor about the music or the dress or whatever, do we have spiritual pride? I need to straighten this out. I <clears throat> when I was going to Bible school, I worked with a wonderful guy, and he used to say this. If you don't agree with us, and there's much you don't agree on, why don't you steal away like an Arab <laughs> in the night? Why make a stink and you know walk and dust your feet? If you're looking for the perfect church, some of the ATI families literally make me want to gag. They'll go to an ATI pastor who's pastoring a church and be even critical there. You know where they end up? Me and her and the kids. Now we got the perfect church. And the kids are so thankful. I'm sorry, that's a little snide. They're not. You know, we can't associate with anybody, not even ATI people. Because the pastor's wife wore a blouse to church that didn't come down to her wrist, and my teenage son saw her bare arm. Guys, be careful. We end up alone. And I don't lower my standards. I left the church my son was a youth pastor in because of the music. I want you to know I've taken stands. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying let everything go and you sit there and they bring in the dancing girls and the drums. They bring in the drums, Logan's out of there. Oh, i got to tell you this one. I know it's time to go to lunch. This is awful. I did a church. I won't tell you where it is. <clears throat> a lot of ATI people want me to do this church. I come in and I did this church. We did a men's thing. We had more men than we have here from that church that came to a men's thing. The guys got so excited. Two years later, they said, bring Logan back. We're going to get our friends. We're going to rent a camp. We're going to have a whole camp with men. And then I preached on the church on Sunday. Well, the first Sunday I preached there, I mean, the first time I was there, I preached. It was sort of iffy, but it was okay. I mean, for me, I'm real squeaky, you know, whatever. The next time we go... I'm in there. And of course, in that city, a major city, word got out, Logan's coming. So all the ATI families are visiting this church. And you can pick them out. They're the only ones there with all their kids in blue suits. You know, I pick them out right there in the audience, you know. And they're all over this church. Well, anyway, I go on the platform and I'm going, oh, no, there's drums. They weren't there when I was there two years before. There's drums. I'm sitting in front of them. And out comes a 14-year-old drummer. <laughs> you know, and we're going to get into it. I go, oh, brother, what do I do? You know, what do I do? I didn't know what to do. I asked Gary Fraley. I said, Gary, did I do the right thing? I don't know what it. I mean, here I'm a visitor. You know, I, am I to cast demons out of the service before it starts? Or, you know, what do I do? So I'm sitting on the platform. And I'm just not one. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm old and squeaky and whatever. And I'm not into a lot of into it stuff. If you are, that's okay. But, you know, for me to do it, it'd be fake. And I get in there and do this stuff. It's this is not Logan. I don't do it, you know. <clears throat> I'm sorry. And so, I mean, they're into it. Everybody's going, and the drummer's drumming, and I'm sitting on the platform, and I go, what do I do? And there's going to be two services. I've got to go through this twice. And I am so embarrassed. I probably bright red. I'm going, here's all these ATI families. So looking at me, first they started clapping, and they're looking to see what I'm going to do. I said, do I clap? What do I do? You know, I mean, it was, I was so uncomfortable. You know, I'm not there to bring judgment on this service. It's not my church. I was asked, to bring the word, and I'm not going to compromise my message. But anyway, so then the choir gets up, 
and they sing a number, the trumpet of the Lord, I have never seen more of a moving, going number in my whole life. I mean, the choir is all over the choir loft, and the trumpet of the Lord is coming in, and it's just unbelievable. And I'm going, oh, I am dying. You know, why don't you trumpet, Lord? <laughs> Go ahead. I'm out on it. Get me off this platform. But what was so neat that after all of this, this teenage drummer, this choir that's all over the platform dancing and singing, you know, the trumpet of God, and everybody's having a wonderful time, and they're just, oh, I mean, the church had loved it. Uh, and Logan's sitting up there, hardly knowing what to do, and uh, really nervous. Then uh, the offertory, this old lady. Now, you know, I'm not a young kid, but when I say a lady's old, will you believe me she's old? This old lady walks out with a violin. I'm going, oh, no, squeaky violin now. I mean, on top of everything else, there's nothing worse than a violin not played well. I mean, for me, I just, I just do this. I just, oh. And I'm going, oh, no. So she gets out there, and this old gal plays the Lord's Prayer. The pastor said she used to be first chair symphony of the, almost of the city, <laughs> symphony. And when she prayed the Lord's Prayer, when she got through, nobody clapped. You couldn't clap because we just worshiped. It would have been wrong. I said, I wonder if they saw the difference between the dumbs and the dancing girls and the choir and all this garbage and somebody who played the Lord's Prayer because we were not wiggling in our seats. Our spirits were raised to the very throne in the presence of God. It's so awesome. And I thought, well, thank God I was here. Because people can see the radical difference between the two things that went on. And, you know, I'm old and I'm squeaky and all that. But, guys, <clears throat> I wish I could find a church that I could worship in. I haven't found one. There's none in our town, I'm sorry. There's not a church in our town that you'll worship God in. You'll praise but you won't worship. And my heart just cries out to worship, to be in a worship service, to be able to worship God. They do everything possible to make it impossible. You know, there's not even a still moment, practically. During the prayer time, they've got to have, you know, symbols or something. <laughs> you know, because people can't stand the quietness. Let's look at the last one, and then we're going out and get our pictures taken. <clears throat> and that's verse 29. 23, a man's pride shall bring him low, but the humble, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. If there's anything that Proverbs tells us about pride, there is a judgment and being brought low. What we don't know, and we won't know till after lunch, is why. Why, if, there, if I won't deal with the pride in my life, why is it going to bring disaster? Now, the New Testament gives us the reason, but we've got to see that. And, boy, I hope you don't have to leave until at least I finish. I mean, I don't think you have to hear me, basically, but you are here. I wouldn't miss the second half because this will make sense. A lot of you are wondering, how do you resist the devil? How can I resist an enemy I cannot see when I don't know he's there? Do I go around with a crucifix, you know, at the refrigerator and all this stuff? You know, how do I, how, how, how do I, how can I live a victorious life when I'm under attack and I can't see the enemy? All of that will make sense after lunch. As I said, this makes this is the day that makes sense to all my counselees that are living in horrible defeat. They said, for the first time, I really understand what's going on. Because we're not ignorant of what? Satan's devices. But if we are, we're going to live defeated life.